Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The environment has always been the sort of spindly, weak pillar of sustainable development that's always almost an afterthought, not all the time, but quite often is. And we're seeing a shift now to bring that right to the front. And smart organizations and smart developers and housing associations will be doing that proactively rather than getting their fingers burnt during the next few years and then having to learn from their mistakes. Hey, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. Just before we kind of dive into it, I think it's probably best to start off with um, a little introduction as to who you are, what you do, and why. Yeah, so I'm uh, Jack Potter. I'm the uh, Biodiversity Manager at Ground Control. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of my work is obviously focused around biodiversity and, and, and tackling the biodiversity crisis that we're in effectively working with clients to to realize their opportunities and, and manage risks. So tell us a little bit more about the biodiversity crisis that we're in. Um, I mean, I think that Britain is is uh, embarrassingly in the sort of bottom 10% of, of uh, countries worldwide for uh, biodiversity loss. So we, we are in crisis. Um, and I think what, what little remains of our environment is is absolutely critical that we hold on to it for dear life. And, and try and expand on on what we currently have and reconnect to to add more resilience to our landscape. What sort of percentages do we have left in respect to like biodiversity within the UK? Um, well, I mean that's a really difficult question to ask, and there's been there's been lots of studies and modelling done to to answer that. But it depends what you call the starting point. To be honest, you know, do you call the starting point? You know, when when robust records began, or before that, because we've been having an impact on this planet for uh, and this country for quite a long time. So yeah, where that baseline sits is is critical to to actually how much has been lost. But I think ultimately comparing whichever whichever baseline you use comparing to other countries we're at the bottom of the pile at the moment what's it been mapped out over the course of maybe the last two decades because that's probably an easier area to look into and and kind of what are the driving factors behind kind of the loss that we're witnessing i mean we've been in a nosedive for for some time i'd say probably the last i don't know maybe 100 years that nosedive maybe started and 
you know, there's the, the, there has been some modelling done on on actually where the tipping point is for environmental collapse. And in Britain, we are right at the very edge of that that threshold. So it's quite a worrying time to be in. And, you know, it, it's it's easy to point the finger. And I think a lot of the finger is ended up being pointed at um, the agricultural industry, which is the, um, I guess they are the custodians of our environment as the owners of land where wildlife generally lives. But, you know, that 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 has been driven largely by government and policy and incentives to do various things over, over the last century. So there's been a lot of reasons for it. And I think the the, the change in culture now and the the... the I guess it's on the radar of, of of everyone, you know, the general public care, and and that really is what drives government and politicians to care, because that's their constituents on you know who they represent. So that's why we're starting to see things like the Environment Act and the need for biodiversity net gain in the development sector, but also more globally looking at um, there's something called the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, which is a bit of a mouthful, but that's a really exciting thing that's happening globally, which will effectively mobilise finance in the non-development sector to start recognising their own impacts on the environment. So it's a really exciting time to be in, but without dwelling on the past, it's a pretty depressing place to be in as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But talking about the Task Force... Walk through the realities of that. Who does it involve? What you're trying to achieve? Like the the wider goals that you're looking towards doing, and and kind of yeah, the key driving factors behind it. So, ground controller are, are a forum member of the of the task force. There, there was a task force for climate related financial disclosures, which was set up some years ago, and that really drove what we see today in in terms of the carbon market and why companies are putting a lot of emphasis and time and money into making their impact less on the world in terms of carbon. And this task force for nature-related financial disclosures is is intensely more complicated. You know, nature is a complicated system. It's an ecosystem that relies on multiple moving parts. Uh, Carbon is is quite simple to, to, to be able to quantify. Nature is not so much. So, uh, ground control represent and, and work with a, a variety of clients, some of which are in the development sector where they have a direct impact and loss of particular habitats and balancing the books through metrics to be able to put back in the environment what you know more than what was lost it, it is something which is fairly easy to do. But when when you're looking at non-development organizations where, you know, potentially I don't know, a drinks company where, you know, they're having an impact by abstracting water from potentially a water-deprived area with water quality issues. You know, what is that impact on the environment and and how do you quantify that? How do you add resilience to that company? So there's lots of things to to consider in this space and I'm sure things will become more clear, you know, over the next few years. And there's there's lots of pilots going on within the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. I was on a, a sort of pilot forum meeting at the beginning of this week where there was a few case studies run through and it's 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 an ever moving and evolving space but it's an exciting space to be in i remember there's two points that i kind of just want to jump into i remember not too long ago when when cop took place i'm pretty sure that for the fourth time in a row biodiversity was kind of postponed in respect to the the challenges that they were looking at and also we saw that is in respect to some of the deadlines that would be in place in respect to net zero. I remember like Modi pushing his deadlines out again. 
for another 10 years. Where are we in respect to like leadership on the overarching issues that we're facing, such as climate change, biodiversity, and what should our leaders and what could we as individuals be doing to address some of these challenges that we, we you know, they're simply there. They're a, they're a reality of the world that we live in, but ultimately we want to get towards solutions rather than continuous perpetual crises. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of the government's ambitions and where we're placed globally, I'd say we're we're actually fairly forward thinking on this. You know, have, having the Environment Act, which which mandates you know legal requirement to leave the the environment and, and nature specifically to be in a better state than when you started, is is a step change to what we've previously seen. And you know, never before has an ecologist like myself been given a blank canvas of of an arable farmer's fields and just been told do something good for the environment and it will be paid for by the development sector. So that is, you know, incredible, and it's an incredible step forwards. And it values those sort of mundane, I guess, urban sprawl habitats like pony paddocks, which previously have never had any recognition in the planning in the planning um, process. So, I think we are quite forward thinking holistically, and and the biodiversity metric, which which is what's used to measure biodiversity impacts uh, in the development sector, was actually derived from Australia. So Australia were also fairly forward thinking. But and I think there are a lot of other countries which are which are following suit. So I saw they brought into law recently that around did they not say that by 2050 they would be brought into law to have net zero? And also they put a deadline in around 2030, 2043 as well in respect to what they're trying to achieve. So yeah, I think Australia, like they're kind of doing amazing things. It's just ultimately like what what do we take from them? I agree definitely the mandates, because one of the things, I guess one of the challenges that we see in the UK, there's a lot of push towards, for example, um, affordable housing. And if people are developing, then, you know, the the requirement, in, in my view, to like mandate a percentage of biodiversity net gain as part of the plans would be quite an interesting thing to do. Whether I don't know whether they're doing it or not, but like, what are your views in respect to how we approach development in this in this country? I think from my experience in the development sector, all is all that's needed is certainty and, and the availability of a solution. They're the two things that, that are needed. And if it can be put into a spreadsheet to, to, to factor into the costs and the viability, and that solution is available and it's affordable, then as long as everyone's on, on the same page and, and everyone's at the same starting point, that, that's all that matters. So I don't think it's necessarily a blocker to development. I think on the social housing side of things, Ground Control does do a lot of work with housing associations. And I think they are potentially struggling to, to, to see a light at the end of the tunnel. So we're currently working with them on, on how they manage their existing estate and realize that the, you know, the benefits they can, they can sort of lever out of their existing land holdings, but also manage risk in terms of new acquisitions. So, you know, if, for example, certain habitats are, are present on site, which means that it's going to be X pounds per dwelling, that tips over the box, uh, tips over the, the edge of what's affordable for them. So I guess there's, there's a shift that we're seeing over the last few years, which is sustainable development is meant to be, you know, the three pillars of sustainable development. 
And the environment has always been the sort of spindly, weak pillar of sustainable development that's always almost an afterthought. Not all the time, but quite often is. And we're seeing a shift now to bring that right to the front. And smart organisations and smart developers and housing associations will be doing that proactively rather than getting their fingers burnt during the next few years and then having to learn from their mistakes. Yeah, I think it's... um, I was reading a book a little while ago called Long Path by Ari Wallach, and it talks about how we've got to become the ancestors our future descendants need. And it's very much about the the long journey. The the, the journey that we take is is long and it can be turbulent, but it requires long-term thinking rather than kind of the strival towards shortcuts. Yeah, I think that that's where we are at the moment. Like, it seems to me like the understanding is like, as an industry, like biodiversity is still fairly within its infancy within the UK. Yeah, it is. And and I think it was 2012 that the first DEFRA offsetting metric was was released and, and had a lot of criticism because, you know, it was seen as, I guess, undermining the mitigation hierarchy where, you know, it's sort of straight to offsetting rather than trying to minimise the impacts and do things on site. But yeah, there's been an evolution since then of the of the metrics and I mean, I came from from Natural England, uh, and I was in the specialist team, uh, effectively building uh, the metric that we see today. And, and and I'm a key author on the guidance. And you know, I am biased because I've been part of that process. But I think you know the metric that we have today is scary to people for seeing it for the first time. But it's it's very thought out. It's evidence based. It puts a value on on all habitats, which has never been n- never really been considered before. And you know, it gives it gives an opportunity for wildlife and green spaces to be integrated into our built environment, which you know, after a pandemic, everyone is valuing so much more to be able to have access to that green space. So it's a it's a really important part of of levering that out of of development. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I think it's also interesting when we look at, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, but then subsequently we're having like cost of living crisis at the moment. People are like, you know, being quite cautious with their money at the moment. Like, how challenging do you believe it will be and kind of what solutions can ground, ground control provide in respect to like big businesses living up to their commitments and also supporting like people at the bottom end of the scale in respect to their own like day-to-day living? I, I would say that nature and the environment is actually more important now than ever. We know, you know, evidence tells us that that nature and access to the environment is absolutely critical to to well-being um, and mental health. So, yeah, although although we are looking at a crisis financially and and the cost of living and all those things, but access to nature generally should be and currently is free. It would be not. I think we've we've come a long way to date in terms of trying to integrate these things into the built environment and giving people that access and uh, there's lots of you know I've, I've done studies previously for for local authorities which sort of maps out people's access to nature and and identifying where there's areas of deprivation and 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 where that needs to be improved so there's a lot of movement towards identifying this and I think it would be it would be great to see in the future how although the NHS is clearly stretched uh, stretched for for money and funding actually having funding specifically for people and well-being and mental health where it's needed to then tie those two things together because there's a lot of talk around it there's a lot of evidence to to support it and i think that just needs to be realized and and mobilized yeah i think it's i agree 100 percent because if you kind of look at what happened with respect to pandemic like not only do people have to go through insane levels of grief and loss that we all kind of shared during that that period. Equally, we um, you know when when we are when we do go into periods of isolation, there's also that the rise or the epidemic of isolation that comes off the back end of it that we that is kind of well documented in respect to people's own mental health journeys. And then there's a rise in opioid addictions, and there's, there's very obvious indicators that there's a need there to support people. Uh, its primary source and yeah i do agree that the kind of there's always been that argument right between how the nhs was funded and you know the the element of like social care on the side and yeah like to me it would make more sense to kind of separate it and have it as clear funnels for investment into people and and also into planet and also into services and infrastructure but i don't know like Hopefully we'll get to that point, but I think it, it, at this point in time, it does seem like it requires a, a little more finessing and more education from like the likes of you guys to policymakers um, to ensure that they are looking more towards people, planet, and a long term rather than kind of just short termism. And I think in respect to that, I would like to understand a little bit more into kind of you know if you were given a blank sheet for example, what, what would be like the top five things that you would be advocating for at this point in time? And second to that, I'd like to kind of explore a little bit more in respect to things like carbon credits. I'm fairly radical in my, my thinking. And, and I, I think 
the government's not ambitious enough, yeah. and I appreciate there needs to be a line to be taken, which which you know satisfies all. And you know, we're looking at potentially the the latest scheme, which which is is called Elms Environmental Land Management, and that's just been proposed to be scrapped, which is which is a huge step backwards to go back to the you know generic payments not really requiring anything of of landowners whereas elms is is sort of paying for for environmental goods for people in communities so yeah i mean a more focused environmental stewardship scheme type approach which at the moment i think and i think it always has been really slightly ad hoc so who wants a stewardship agreement there isn't enough resource to be able to to target people in the right places and there should be so more money for being able to target people there should be more money available for those stewardship agreements and potentially less of them to be able to pay more to have it in the right place because all of the evidence has said to us so far is that we need bigger environmental spaces for nature and they need to be more connected and you're not going to achieve that by having ad hoc agreements scattered or peppered across the whole of the landscape. You're juggling too many balls to achieve the objective, which is unreasonable to achieve. So I think for me, it's more targeted. Mm. And the Environment Act is one way of identifying actually how, how we do that or where we do that, because there's, there's something called the local nature recovery strategies, uh, which ground control are actually part of in a number of the local nature partnerships across England, where basically you're mapping out where the current assets are that are most important to protect and enhance, how permeable the landscape is around them, between them, which then identifies where actually habitat creation would be most valuable. Now, that mapping exercise is, is you know, is amazing. You know, that's 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 really going to allow us to focus on where it matters, you know, where we need to implement change and focus our finance from whatever sector that is, whether it's private or public funds, to be able to achieve the bigger, better, and more joined up picture. So I think that's one thing that I think, you know, I feel like is is a priority. It does sound a lot like, and we do see we've got to be like fairly straight with the facts we do see that at the moment is it's a, it's a bit of a crisis in confidence rather than anything else because the decision making is always kind of you know almost like reactive rather than proactive in respect to long-term focus it's understanding as well if that mapping thing would be useful amazing in fact because you'd be able to like see fairly clearly areas of the, of the country where you could kind of build and also other areas where you should nurture and maintain if you have that kind of partnership approach in respect to actually we want to see progression but we want to see it in a sustainable way that's um, for the benefit of all then you know we have real opportunity ahead of us at the moment and we can kind of move beyond some of these kind of turbulent effects that we see at the moment if we start thinking more towards long term and I think that's the cool part about where we are at the moment like it does draw I did mention about carbon credits and I do want to kind of come back to that because the idea of carbon credits and and how they are being utilized by business and also the work that you guys do and also kind of the approach because carbon credits are one thing but kind of there's to we can go above and beyond that so if you'd like to kind of walk through to people that don't know what carbon credits are how they're being utilized and also what options are available to us to go beyond them 
Yeah, I mean, I, I won't pretend that I'm a um, a climate and carbon expert. I'm a I'm a biodiversity expert, but nevertheless, we do you know at Ground Control we do try and sort of harness all of the different ecosystem services and credit systems that can be monetized to drive landscape change, which is focused around what's best for the environment and for people in that environment. So I guess my main interest around carbon credits is around the nature-based solutions rather than the renewable energy side of things or um, you know, prevention of, of cutting down a woodland to then claim the credits that are within that woodland type thing. And we've we've recently embarked on a journey a, a few years ago where ground control basically put aside five percent of their net profits into a fund which was then invested uh, into environmental schemes and startups and there was an opportunity to buy some land locally to the headquarters for for um ground control which is in essex so that that farm was bought it was a almost entirely arable farm with a bit of woodland and then there was i think the intention was basically for a woodland scheme but then on sort of further reflection and 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 sort of insights into the markets available and and what needed to be achieved on the site which was best for the environment and the local communities there needed to be a, a joint approach so basically the landscape plan for the site was to to have a swathe of woodland of about 50 hectares of woodland woodland creation through the woodland grant scheme which is a government grant scheme which would then generate i think it's 18,000 tons of of carbon over 50 years so there are the credits available, which I think is intended for, for ground control to use them inter, internally. And the Woodland Grant itself effectively paid for the actual capital cost of doing the woodland creation. So there's no profits available for sort of doing the, the implementation of it, but the carbon credits could be then claimed by ground control. And the rest of the scheme, which is probably just over half of half of the site, was then put towards biodiversity net gain and effectively having a, a, a mixture and a mosaic of scrub, grassland, woodland, and ponds, all of which interfacing with each other and, and in a sort of, I guess, crazed, slightly unorganized environment will create the what's called ecotones between each of those habitats, which are known to be best for the environment. So you have sort of species that live within woodlands and species that live within grassland, and then you have the ones that live in the interface between the two. So you're sort of maximizing the biodiversity value and output for that. I think it's it's interesting as well because listening to you speak, I immediately like harker back to some of the previous conversations we've had on this podcast. And one of the ones that immediately springs to mind was a business called Gratitude that work within the computer game sphere. And they essentially take a percentage of an in-game purchase from an online game and utilize that for you know sustainable means. They've got work and partnerships created with the likes of Shark Trust. They also give 10% of their um, annual revenue away. And looking at the scope of like the games industry, for example, they've got, you know, by 2027, the games industry is 
set to generate 337 billion um, in revenue. They've got like 3 billion active players. All those 3 billion active players have the opportunity to utilize some of the credit that they use from an in-game purchase through gratitude to go into a, a partnership with the likes of yourself, which I think that one is like the easiest win to do and just say, well, actually they're doing amazing work here. You guys are doing amazing work there and just connect the dots. Because I think that... There is going to be a bit of a challenge, right? Because if you look at the way that... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even budgets from a, a government perspective are kind of put together and created. Historically, back in the day, there was a lot more like local ownership. So in respect to that, the local nuance, in respect to where you know you could invest those funds and why nowadays the budgets are being cut and we've got to be kind of real about this so the budgets are being cut and it's also being like everything's being centralized so there's less opportunity for that you know regional approach that could be adopted however if you move above and beyond government and look more towards a partnership approach in business there's real opportunity to be created and a real like wealth of um experience to be utilized to to you know implement things that are going to be of lasting impact to people and planet and i think that for me it's it's wonderful to hear the work that you guys are doing because it really encourages me for what is about to take place in the next evolution of society as a whole and i think where we're going it's all for the positive so yeah it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you so thank you so much for your time yeah no thank you thank you for having me 
for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode.